A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Chapter 37 Mr. Darcy leaves Rosings and takes Fitzwilliam with him. Lady Catherine is heartbroken because, she tells us, she feels things more deeply than the rest of us idiots. She tries to convince Lizzie and Mariah to stay longer, but Lizzie is firm. She has to get home. In her last days visiting Charlotte in the Rosings group, Lizzie is completely preoccupied by Darcy's proposal and letter. Here is Susan Zlotnick on why Lizzie might be so obsessed with the proposal and its aftermath. I mean, the letter kind of, it's her moment of education, right? Like she reads it and she has that moment where it's like, oh my God, you know, I'm, I'm fallible. I've made all these errors in judgment, how blind I've been. It's the Bildungsroman moment, right? You know that, that the standard 19th century novel is the Bildungsroman. It's still a little heavy-handed, I think, in Pride and Prejudice. You know, it's much better kind of later on where the, the growth in education is a little more gentle, you know, and kind of over the course of the novel, where this is just this boom moment, you know, where she realizes, oh, I've been relying on my individual judgment all along because I am an individualist. And it's the moment where she realizes that, oh my God, just relying on your individual judgment and not taking into account other people's voices or other people's concerns or other people's needs is problematic. Post-proposal, she sees everything through new eyes, included but not limited to, I could have been sitting at this table as Lady Catherine's niece-to-be. Chapter 38. On the day that Lizzie is set to leave, she gets stuck alone with Mr. Collins. The conversation starts kindly enough. He wants Lizzie to know how happy Charlotte was in having Lizzie with them in Kent. He then does his Collins thing all over everything, though. He says that he expects Lizzie to give favorable reports back at home, and then says that he and Charlotte are basically soulmates. Lizzie is gracious. The message is received. He is glad she rejected him. And Charlotte does seem happy with her poultry. Lizzie arrives to London and stays for a few days with Jane and the gardeners before the young ladies go back to Hertfordshire. In chapter 39, Jane, Mariah, and Lizzie are back in their county. They are set to transfer carriages in town when they run into Kitty and Lydia, who have happily been waiting for them. Lydia declares that they are there to treat Jane and Lizzie to lunch, but Jane and Lizzie will have to pay because Lydia has no money. 
She has no money because she has bought a bonnet that she thinks is ugly, but she says could be uglier. That's how vapid Lydia is. She shops just to shop, even if she doesn't want the thing she buys, the book is telling us. And Lydia gives us news at this lunch. Wickham will not be marrying Miss King. The militia is being moved to Brighton, and Lydia desperately wants to follow. During this lunch, Lizzie is suddenly seeing her family anew. Lydia is ridiculous, and so is Kitty, and her mother has modeled it, and her father just sits there and mocks it. Here is Elsie Mitchie on this scene. For me, the actually the most interesting moment about with Lydia is the moment when Elizabeth comes back and they meet her in the coach, right? And she listens to Lydia and she goes, oh my God. Except for the manners, except for the fact that Lydia's unmannerly, those are exactly the things that I thought, right? I mean, she sees Lydia as an image of herself. And I think that's a really quite fascinating moment. And, the, and you know, the, the question in Austin's novels about whether people grow and change, right? Because in some ways they seem like they're, they're themselves throughout the novel, right? There they are. Here's Lydia. She's always going to be Lydia, Mrs. Bennett. I mean, and even... Even Darcy and Elizabeth, who do change in some ways, there's lots of ways in which they seem similar. But that seems to me a moment of real change for Elizabeth to see that thing. We see that Lizzie is already changed by Darcy, just in how she responds to this conversation, which makes us suspicious of the fact that this letter, though not a love letter, may have worked on her anyway. Lizzie and Jane finally make it home. Mr. Bennett is thrilled to see Lizzie, and Mrs. Bennett is thrilled to see that Jane is still so pretty. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Lauren Sandler. And this is Live from Pemberley from Hot and Bothered. Lauren... What do you feel like we should know in order to dive into these chapters? Uh, Well, there's so much to dive into, even though there's so little that really happens in these chapters. (laughs) There's so much in there. But I feel like it's an opportunity for us to talk about something that we don't get to talk about all that often because Austin does not give us many opportunities. And that is talking about the servants. As you've said before, this is such an upstairs book, but at least they are referred to in these pages. And specifically, it is the manservants who are referred to, right? So Lady Catherine insists that it is imperative that The ladies are accompanied on the road by a manservant. She suggests sending one of her own. And then it turns out the gardeners have already taken care of that. She's so impressed that they have a manservant. Part of why she's so impressed that they have a manservant is they were luxury goods, quite literally. Mm. So there was a tax that was applied specifically to manservants and not to manservants who were gardeners or worked in the stable, but the sort of manservant that Lady Catherine is talking about, you know, a footman, someone who would be seen by visitors, someone who would be out in the world with the family. And these were men who were hired for their looks, (laughs) 
like down to the fact that their calves needed to be perfect so that in their silk stockings, people could admire their calves. They would have powdered wigs. They would be wearing, you know, livery garb to accompany people at a dinner or off as they take a coach home. And they would not ride in the coach, they would literally run beside it. That's why they were called footmen. Or in some opportunities, they would sort of hang off the back, but posturing, right? They were decorative. So you had to be able to like run 50 miles. Oh, definitely. And you had to be able to run 50 miles in the whole getup, right? In the wig, in the waistcoat, in the jacket, in the bloomers, in the silk stockings. And you had to come out looking good at the end of it. Furthermore, they were often hired in pairs. You would have two footmen and they would have to be of equal height because if you had two men of unequal height, that wouldn't look right. They needed to look like, you know, a pair of lions, essentially. And so they were considered luxury goods because they were clearly being used as a display of conspicuous consumption. And so, you know, having a footman was a thing. Having someone to to send for the girls was a sign of a far higher society than anyone imagined that the gardeners might have, or at least that Lady Catherine did. Lauren, I just like, I can't believe that these were like marathon runners in livery. I would imagine that like people traveled by coach in like bad weather when it's very cold out or very hot out. This sounds like a really dangerous job and one that you like can't do into your 40s and 50s and 60s. I can't believe this was a job. I already thought it was a bad job. I thought it was you hanging on to like a railing outside of a carriage. And I like already thought that sounded terrible. But what the heck? Well, it was very specifically a job for hot young men. And yeah. of course, they would also hang from a railing. I don't know if they would run alongside every mile. You know, at, at some point, and actually this point is pretty adjacent to when Austin is writing this book, the actual running starts to become a little less important. But historically, this is what footmen did. And of course, why they are called footmen. Yeah. Another thing, Lauren, is that all of this information is so helpful because we hear this conversation between Lady Catherine and Lizzie, where Lady Catherine is like, you have to have a footman with you. I always send everybody with a footman. It's what's safe. And there is like essentially I believe that like rich people are more entitled to safety than others and that the road is this very dangerous place, which I do know that there were dangers in traveling. But one of the things that Lady Catherine says is like, I always send a footman. I sent a footman along with Georgiana when she was traveling last summer. And we have news hot off the presses that Georgiana was not safe and that the call was coming from inside the house on that, right? It was not a rogue highwaysman kidnapper that kidnapped Georgiana, but someone who would be seen of as safe. And I find that fascinating just because I feel like in the last 10 years or so, we've been dispelling this myth of stranger danger and that actually a lot of harm comes from inside the house and like, Austin knew this 200 years ago, right? That like, it's not a footman you need. You need Wickham to not be a predator. And this is something that I remember discussing in our Bronte days that, you know, there was so much mythology around the gypsies, as they were called, you know, that there were going to be kidnappers. People would hold you for ransom. Who knows what they would do with your body, et cetera. And so much of that was racially motivated fear mongering. Right. 
And so this notion of danger was was very, very loaded in those moments and very, very false in many, many ways. But it's interesting to read other accounts of manservants in which they are also supposed to be quite tall and fit because they were seen as the bouncers of the family, right? right? So they would not just protect you on the road, but if someone were to approach the house, they were there to basically man the velvet rope. And so I think that there's this... This anxiety that we're feeling throughout this whole book about the rise of the middle class, there's the industrial revolution Mm -hmm. coming, there are the Mm -hmm. roads that are being built. I mean, these sort of like sequestered little castles where people and their wealth and their history is hidden away, you know, untouchable. Those doors are opening now. Things are changing. And I think it's making the Lady Catherines of the world feel more than ever that that security force is so necessary. It's also just so interesting. One of my very close friends, Paul, got hired when we were in our early 20s to be a security guard for our parking lot. And I remember talking to him one night. They were paying him minimum wage, right? Which like in 2004, 2005 in Missouri was $6 an hour. And I was just like, what do they think you are going to sacrifice for $6 an hour? Like if something dangerous happens, run. Like, run as far away as fast as you can, right? Like, $6 an hour does not buy your life. And they they can't actually think that anybody is going to approach someone who is robbing a car because of $6 an hour. So what you're actually paying for is security theater. And, like, that's also just interesting to me, right? That Lady Catherine is like, I have manservants. Nothing bad can happen. And little does she know that a horrible thing happened to her own niece, The world isn't as scary as they think it is. And also you can't buy security in that way. It's interesting, though, because I feel like this sort of opens up a place to think about Lydia. It does sort of bring into question notions of agency and desire. If this is something that Georgiana wanted, if she felt this, then do you want some bouncer like edging out a Wickham? If what Lydia wants to do is like leave herself open to the possible ravages of anyone in a red coat, that's what how she can feel alive in the world. I just these sorts of questions of of how we protect girls, especially are almost always related to sex. And they're almost always related to a sex that girls think that they want, but we think that they don't, you know, a we as some sort of like protective power. And I think that there's something that's really deep in in anxiety around girls and sexuality when it comes to these conversations. It's hard though, right, Lauren? Because... You never want to be the person to break the social contract. Like we had a very similar version of this conversation with Jane Eyre. And you've moved me on this where I was saying about Jane, she can't run away with Rochester. Then she will have no options. And your point is, who cares? She could still run away with him. And there were women who did this, right? Apparently all of them were named George because I'm thinking about George Sand and George Eliot, both of whom around these times were wearing pants and having affairs and living with their lovers and leaving their husbands and, and still living very full lives. And all sorts of other people did it as well. And this sort of policing of women contributes to the trapping of women, right? The same policing of women's desire would be the thing that would have trapped Georgiana with Wickham. 
And yet I don't want my 15 year old to be the person who pushes the envelope on these things because I don't want her to be stuck with Wickham because she wanted to have sex with him for a few days. And unfortunately, that's the world we live in. I want someone else to change the world so that my younger sister can live in a free love world without having the repercussions of it. But I think that Lydia wants that too. I do not think that Lydia for a second, as we're meeting her here, is thinking about growing old with someone or having, you know, a stable home or wondering where the money is coming from. I think that Lydia is, you know, exactly the way I was at 15. And every time I read this book, I have this experience where I read Lydia from here forth. And as I'm reading I can't stand her. I think that she is so unethical, so selfish, so deaf to other people's concerns and feelings, so just completely self-interested. And those are all things that just make my blood boil. And then I step away from the book. You know, I'm going about my day. I'm cooking or walking or whatever. And I have Lydia on the mind. And outside of reading the exact words, reading Austin's actual framing, what I am left with is Lydia is a 15-year-old girl who wants to live life fully, who wants to be desired and feel desire, who wants to go to parties and see the world and have flirtation and have value outside of her family. And I feel like, oh my God, am I going to write like Lydia fan fiction? Is there a Lydia here that gets pulled out of this book that Austin was incapable of seeing? But I feel so much in my bones, in part because I was her, but also in part because I believe in fighting for those things. You know, what does it mean to decouple Lydia's desire from Lydia's like total lack of morality or empathy for other people? I mean, I think that this is a version of Austin's conservatism, right? She she doesn't like this kind of girl. She doesn't want people to marry people who are beneath them, right? Intellectually and morally, she doesn't like Collins. But she also thinks that Lydia is very distasteful. Lizzie is going to say to Mr. Bennett in a couple of chapters, like Lydia is going to confirm herself as the most determined flirt or something along those lines. Like there is a lot of judgment of Lydia. And I'm I'm not sure that it comes from a good place. I think that it is just like, that's embarrassing. It's distasteful to be so shameless. I also think there's some things that I outright judge Lydia for saying, hi, I'm here to treat you to lunch, but you have to pay. Like, that's not a 15-year-old thing. Like, that's just an obnoxious person thing. I know a lot of adults like that. And I know a lot of kids who aren't like that. Like, that seems to me to just be like the sign of someone who feels a little bit entitled or what have you. But she's also just annoying, right? Oh, she's the absolute worst. I mean, the absolute worst. And that's sort of my point is, could Austin have imagined the libertine who wasn't also going to be the person who says, I'm treating for lunch, hand me your credit card. I mean, there's no reason why the most adventurous, sexually desirous, excitable character in the book also needs to be the one who is the most selfish and most irresponsible. 
But it does feel in creating the archetypes of all of the sisters that these character traits are woven together for a reason, that it is what Austin tells us she thinks about young female sexuality. I don't know why it's impossible to have some sort of Lizzie-Lydia hybrid in the literature of this era. Why it is that we can't square the idea of desire and adventure on that level with also being witty and clear thinking and caring about one's sister. And I think that that's that's a flaw. That's a flaw of how Austin could see female desire. I just I feel like I am hearing people screaming in their cars right now about Marianne and Sense and Sensibility. So on behalf of them, okay, you're right. I just want right. to say you're right. You're right. No, you're no, right. no, no, no. On behalf of them, I think that Austin agrees with you. And what we see in Sense and Sensibility is that that person gets punished. And I don't think Austin wants that person to get punished. I think she knows that they do, or she sees the world as I know that they do. And again, like Austin is not a revolutionary. So she's not saying this is what we would have to do in order for that to change. The Marianne's of the world should not have to get punished. It should not be inevitable that they have to get destroyed and almost die because they were this combination of Lizzie and Lydia. But Austin really does believe in that cautionary tale. And I think it is a fair criticism to say, hey, Austin, why don't you hold the world to a higher standard rather than blaming this 15-year-old kid? But I also think that for Austin, it comes from a place of fear. And it's one of these moments, I think, where it can be difficult to sort of untangle the wires of what is backlash to the Elizabethan era over a lot of time, right? What is just her own personal predilections based on her own very kind of churchy country upbringing? What is about the specifics of the moment around anxiety about shifting family dynamics and where that line moves, even if you are not incredibly wealthy? But I also wonder about the leap between flirtation and sexual intercourse, right? It's always about this sort of fear of what happens if there's an ejaculation inside your body. And often that isn't even what this is about. I mean, who knows if that's something that Lydia wants or not in her 15-year-old heart right now. She just might want a bonnet that looks a little less ugly. She just might want to dance and laugh and kiss a little bit at a ball. She's doing the best that she can to live the most with what she's got. She can only afford the ugly bonnet, but God damn it, she's going to have the bonnet. And she's going to figure out how to make that bonnet be the best damn bonnet she can make it. And you know what? Yes, it is fun to be crammed in with a bunch of packages. That's how she gets to see other people live. And that is denied to her because of the family that she was born into. And so there are all of these different elements of sort of generational yoking and baggage with this family. All the things that one isn't going to get. One isn't going to be well-mothered or well-fathered. One isn't going to get the family home to age in. There's no money for security. What do you make of it and how? And I think that Lydia is more clear-eyed about that or at least more obstinate about it in a way that I find sort of delicious once I step outside her characterization than we give her credit for. Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing, and you hinted at this also, 
is that I just like can't imagine how boring it was. And so like buy the ugly bonnet because it's going to give you something to trim and like a pretty bonnet. There's nothing to do. (laughs) An ugly bonnet is a project. But the other thing that this is just occurring to me, Lauren, is that we, I do think are really set up to judge Lydia in this chapter for this bonnet. We meet Lizzie and she's trimming a bonnet. That is what she's doing in paragraph one of the novel. And so I'm just not sure that the difference between these two girls is that vast. You know, Lydia's going to want to go to Brighton and Lizzie just came back from visiting Charlotte and Kent, right? Like these are not outlandish things that Lydia is doing. They're all things that we see in a different style and with different manners that Lizzie is doing. But again, this is the Austin thing. It's not what you do. It's how you do it. It's not the proposal that comes out of nowhere. It's the fact that you insulted her while you were doing it. It's very manners-based. And Lydia is uncouth when she does these things. Georgiana runs away with Wickham, and we feel bad for her for it. Lydia runs away with Wickham, and we judge her for it. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Lauren, this conversation leads perfectly into the sentence that we want to look closely at this week, which is an encounter between Lydia and Lizzie. So Lydia is telling us that Wickham and Miss King have sort of been separated and that Wickham will not be marrying Miss King. And Lydia is saying, thank God Wickham is safe, is the word she uses, from Miss King. And she says, ah, and Miss King, you know, was a gross little freckled girl. And then the quote we want to look at is, Elizabeth was shocked to think that, however incapable of such coarseness of expression herself, the coarseness of the sentiment was little other than her own breast had formerly harbored and fancied liberal. And this is, again, like showing us the similarity between Lydia and Lizzie and that Lizzie is essentially saying, ugh, that is so gross that you said it even though I essentially thought the same thing and like didn't judge myself for thinking it, right? So it's this like manners question. Which I have to say, I think that Lydia has those elements of like, 
you know what, let's just call it. Let's just say it. And I think that at times, that's a horribly inappropriate thing to do, to talk about the waiter being ugly, you know, at the inn right in front of him. That you don't do. But oh my God, talking smack about Miss King when you're just sisters, talking about, you know, a little dish about someone who you might have thought might marry your sister, running off with someone else and then getting ditched by her. That's some good stuff right there. Who doesn't say that? Who doesn't want to hang out with a friend who says that? And so I'm not quite feeling Austin's judgment of this. And I'm feeling yet again in a way that almost makes me uncomfortable with myself on Team Lydia here. I love to gossip. So this is a fun lunch for me. I mean, the the most interesting thing to me about this, and we've touched on this, is that Lizzie is already changing. She really did almost say to Mrs. Gardner essentially the same thing. She said to Mrs. Gardner, like, yeah, so what? Wickham is definitely marrying her for the money. Like, sucks that we live in that world, but that's the world we live in. Like, this seems to me to be, like, developmentally appropriate, even if delayed, of, like, differentiation from her family. Of, like, I don't want to be that. I don't want to be disparaging Miss King and insulting the waiter. Like, I'll laugh at a lot of things, including myself. But, oh, shoot. Like, I've been pulled into these things and I don't want to anymore. And the other thing is just, like, Lizzie has this additional piece of information about Wickham. And so I think she has more compassion for Miss King. I I never noticed this, but it's kind of a mini hero's journey that she goes on. And she's, like, coming home humbled and, like, trying to figure out how to reintegrate into her home life as a different person. And she's struggling with that. And she's judging Lydia and is being rude about it. But I don't know. I'm like proud of her for growing. No, I agree. I agree. And I think that the word coarseness and the word coarseness repeated here is very, very telling. It's a very class conscious word. It's very redolent of Darcy's critiques of the family. And I think it's, you know, it's very much, as you're saying, what happens when you return home, right? Like what it was like for me to go off to college and get super immersed in Marxist thought and go home and like see my liberal parents is like (laughs) the enemy of the left. Part of the establishment. Exactly. You know, you, you do that. You do that thing where everything is made more extreme by your new realizations about your family of origin and how you now have differentiated yourself. And for her, I think that's very much about manners and very much about how she's now seeing her family through Darcy's eyes. These are never things that I think she adored about her family, but it was her family. And now she's living a life outside of her family in a different way for the first time. And that can, in a very scary way, redefine where you're from. So, Lauren, you talked about really seeing yourself in in Lydia The moment that I saw myself in Lizzie is this like, I have gossip to tell my best friend and I want everyone else to leave the room. And she wants to tell Jane that Darcy proposed and about Wickham and they can't talk about it for a week because they are visiting the gardeners and then in a carriage and like, The lack of privacy for young women. I feel like young men, I'm making this up, but I feel like young men would have been able to like go to a club in London or like, 
go into the smoking room. These two girls can't talk about this for a week and they can't be like texting each other. Be like, come to the bathroom with me. I gotta tell you, this would kill me. It's unimaginable. Is it really possible that like they couldn't have taken a really long walk? (laughs) I don't know. In London on a company? I don't know. Like (sighs) it really seems possible. Yeah. I mean, I do. I love how how Austin's really piling that on and like the crammed carriage. Like you get the feeling of how packed in all these people are all the time and how not only is there no privacy, but everyone's peccadilloes are just always there, always right in front of you. And what you're carrying inside your heart and soul can be so at odds with what's happening around you all the time. And there's no place to go with it. I mean, maybe this is part of the whole British perseverance. This is like what keep calm and carry on actually it's not about the blitz. It's not about the blitz at all. It way predates the blitz. It's about not being able to like sit in the bathroom with your sister and say, dude, he freaking proposed to me. And that's not even everything I have to tell you. Sit down. I know. <laughs> I mean, Lauren, in talking about like how oppressive society was, everything that people were enduring. We also find out that there was a party that Lydia was at. Lydia tells Jane and Lizzie about this. And she's like, Lizzie and Jane, you have no idea how much fun it was. There was a party and we dressed up this guy, Chamberlain. We don't quite know who Chamberlain is. Is he a guy in the militia? Is he a servant? That would all change the power dynamics, but we don't know. We dressed him up in women's clothing and we kind of waited to see like it was a reality show who was going to notice and how it was all going to play out. And again, I think that this speaks to like abject boredom of like, let's put someone in someone else's clothes and see how it all plays out. But it's obviously much richer than that. Like cross-dressing for comedy goes back pre-Shakespeare and cross-dressing is like as old as time and cross-dressing in literature is as old as time. But there is this like Lydia doing it for consumption or for entertainment or for theater that feels different and almost queenly. And they she can demand this of people or that she was a part of a group of women that could make this happen that I find very interesting. I mean, yes, we have cross-dressing show up in so much literature and so much theater going way, way, way back. And I mean, just thinking about about Twelfth Night, you have men playing women who are dressed as men. I mean, it gets complicated. It's not new. However, it is very different when it feels like it's non-consensual. And the dynamics at play that would be involved in I'm just imagining like the dressing, the making up, the giggling, the all of it. There's something that feels very cruel in this scene. Yeah. And again, I think complicates this Lydia situation again, that depending on who this person is, like she's looking for fun and she's bored in any number of other things, but also she's participating in some bullying, which is another way that I can imagine Lydia being presented. And of course, it's experimenting with breaking social mores, which we will see her take as far as it can possibly get. And there is something about that that is what you do in adolescence. But there is something about her doing it at the expense of another person, which speaks to her character as much as anything else. Next week, Lauren, we're doing chapters 40, 41, and 42. Lizzie is finally going to be able to tell Jane 
Jane and Lizzie make a decision together that I don't know if I agree with. Very exciting stuff happens. And Lizzie also has a conversation with her dad, which I think is so key to all of this. I can't wait to talk about it. And we get background information on Mr. and Mrs. Bennett. It's it's juicy. It's juicy. So one of the things I keep thinking about, and maybe it's because I'm relating to it a little bit, is just Lydia's over-the-topness and what it means within this family dynamic. Also, we have the specter of Lydia as being sexually transgressive. That's an important part of her of her too-muchness. And clearly that's part of her threat. And I, I just I'm just so curious to dig into that. So we found a fascinating paper, which I've become a bit obsessed with, and we wanted to call the author. So Kristen Samuelian is a professor in the English department at George Mason University, and she teaches British literature, but with a focus on gender, sex, romance, and the body. And I think she'll have some essential historical context and analysis for us. So let's get her on the phone. Hi, Kristen. Hi there. Thanks so much. Oh, thank you for joining us. I keep thinking about these two words in this fantastic paper that you wrote, which is the rhetorical slippage between flirtation and sex. So can we just kick it off with that and then we'll get a little bit deeper? Can you tell me a little bit about that rhetorical slippage and how we see it applied to Lydia and also just in the culture of Austin's England? Right. So when I was thinking about Lydia, I was thinking particularly about a sort of chain of events in the British popular imagination that erupted from time to time, really from the late 1790s all the way up until 1820 or so, but had just recently erupted into the public imagination again, right around the same time that Austen was writing Pride and Prejudice. And this was about the Prince of Wales, later Prince Regent's difficult relationship with his wife, Princess Caroline of Brunswick, and his attempts to divest himself of her through getting a separation, later on through trying to actually divorce her. And one of the things that kept coming up in his public attempts to achieve a separation from her or even a divorce was this idea of whether or not she was having active sexual affairs with other men. And it was not provable But so much of the evidence that was used to try to discredit her was just sort of evidence of kind of being too knowing, you know, laughing at dirty jokes, dressing too familiarly, but specifically being familiar with men became this kind of not quite code because that's not quite the right word, but equivalence maybe would be a better word. Sort of somewhere between this proves it and it doesn't really matter because if you're doing this, you might as well, I guess, is the way to think about it. And that strikes me as so, so particularly applicable to Lydia, who's just completely unconcerned about these kinds of social mores that are so important to her family, in part because her family is in this social position, you know, given the sort of social discrepancy between her father and her mother, right? And Lydia is very much aligned with her mother's sort of vulgarity, I guess, would be a good way to to sort of think about it. And 
Lydia's not caring, not caring about servants overhearing her saying indiscreet things. And just general, I mean, I loved your phrase, too muchness. You know, she just, she just takes up too much space. I mean, it's so interesting to make this link between Princess Caroline and Lydia, because we do end up knowing in great detail what she's accused of, right? That she's she's dressing indecently or that she's she's being unchaperoned. And this gets linked with the possible illegitimacy of a child. Right, right. How would Austin have encountered these stories? So the testimony that was gathered. It was never published, um, but it was printed. And there were a number of copies that were briefly circulated before they were suppressed. And they became known as the book. Uh, Jane Austen calls it the Princess of Wales letter um, because it's prefaced by a letter of the Princess of Wales to her husband, probably written by her attorney. And there were rumors all over the place about the book. There were purported pirated versions of the book. It began to sort of get adopted into other genres. And and there were sort of, there was a sentimental novel that was supposed to be, you know, the true story behind the book. So it was kind of out there in political court gossip. And Austin knew about it. And she has a she writes in a letter, I think, to her friend Martha Lloyd. I suppose all the world is sitting in judgment. Um, about the Princess of Wales letter. Poor woman, she says, I've, you know, I, I have to sort of take her side because I detest her husband, but you know, the evidence against her isn't very good. And then what she says about the evidence against her being very good is her friendship with a scandalous wife of a peer, Lady Oxford. She says, the friendship with Lady Oxford is bad. And that's all she says. In your descriptions of her, you know, her weight, her drinking, her her sexual appetites, her too muchness. I think that, you know, there's such a a class critique in there, not your class critique, but a social (laughs) class critique. And absolutely. And and that's so much of what I feel when we read Lydia is, you know, what does it mean to to class jump and what does it mean to to keep your family from doing that? And is that part of what what you see and you feel when you read Lydia is some of the class anxiety that was swirling around the Princess of Wales? Oh, I, yeah. I mean, I, I think the two texts, you know, even if Austin didn't know about it, there's such interesting sort of cultural resonances between the two of them. And Lydia is in many ways, you know, sort of that wonderful scene in the carriage on the way home when she's when she's met, she and Kitty have met Jane and Elizabeth and they said, oh, we're going to treat you to lunch. And then, oh, but we don't have any money. You have to lend it to us. And then she talks about buying the And then she gets there. She's so delighted at how squished they are in the carriage. And she really loves what, you know, she she likes taking up a lot of room. You know, one of the things I think about is, and I talk about this with Princess Caroline, and I really would like to think this about Lydia as well, but um, is this just sort of this excessive fleshliness, fleshiness and fleshliness, right? So that is both exposing a lot of flesh and also just being sort of of the earth and earthy, right? And that those two things get kind of conflated. And I'm thinking in particular, I don't think there's any description of Lydia at all, except sort of being young and healthy, right? But she is identified with bodies, right? So in the luncheon beforehand, when she's telling that really shocking story of how they all went over and dressed up Chamberlain in ladies' clothing. I mean, there's so, you know, layers upon layers of, oh, this is not a good idea. 
Chamberlain is probably a servant, intimate familiarity with female clothing and with, you know, it just goes on and on and on about how shocking that scene is. And the pun that she sort of gives out when she says, you know, the men came in and they didn't recognize him at all. I thought I should have died. And that made the men suspect something. And of course, die is slang for orgasm. So there's this, <laughs> there's this moment where it's like, hmm, okay, um, what exactly are you saying there, Lydia? And of course, that slang is from the French, Le Petit More. And of course, this is a moment yes. of defining yes. Englishness against Frenchness and what's going to win. Yes. And Lydia's our most yes. French Bennett sister. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good way to put her. Yeah, I think that's right. I do wonder, I mean, we've touched on this a little bit, but, you know, we've talked a lot on this podcast about how we continue to replicate the ideas, the tendencies, the types, the preferences that Austin has laid out for us in this book, that perhaps this is the book that told women that it's a good idea to fall in love with a withholding (laughs) man. And so on. Are there elements of of these aspects of Lydia's appetites and portrayal that you feel we are stuck with? Not to lay it all on Austin, but did Austin really kind of define and feed into a certain type that as we carry Pride and Prejudice forward and it defines how I think a lot of people think about themselves and in the world? Is Lydia a part of that inheritance? Uh, in a sort of don't be a Lydia way? Is that kind of what you're getting at? I don't know. As someone who has some Lydia tendencies myself, I'm a little bit of a Lydia defender in certain ways. So I wouldn't say that. Yeah, well, I think we all have Lydia tendencies, right? And Elizabeth has Lydia tendencies, right? So even in that scene, when they're having lunch. And of course, one of the, the moment when Elizabeth and Jane send the waiter away is when Lydia goes, I've got some gossip. And what she then tells them is that Wickham is not going to marry Mary King, right? And, and Lydia says, well, then Wickham is safe. And Elizabeth says, yeah, and Mary King is safe. And then Lydia says, ah, you know, she was, she was ugly and had freckles, so who cares? And then we have this moment in Austin's Free and Direct Discourse where Elizabeth is thinking to herself, okay, I wouldn't have put it quite that way, but that's exactly what I thought about Mary King too. So there are these moments in the novel when Elizabeth is like, you know, you sort of, Elizabeth is Lydia. I mean, Lydia is Elizabeth uncontained almost, or maybe without Elizabeth's intelligence, but maybe not without Elizabeth's intelligence. You know, maybe it's just without Elizabeth's father's patronage. It brings to mind something that we talked about a lot last season when we were reading Jane Eyre about the sort of second wave idea that Bertha is is Jane's like dark desirous subconscious right. and i wonder if there's there are elements of of Lydia representing Lizzie in in a psychoanalytic sense that we do not need to get into here i just wanted to say out loud <laughs> well but I, I think you know that that is in many ways the argument that Mary Poovey makes in her book the proper lady and the one writer when she talks about anarchic desires right And of course, one element of Lydia's personality, which is brought so centrally into these scenes with her, is is her laughter, how much she laughs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is there something that we should be paying attention to every time we hear Lydia laugh? You know, that's a great question. And I guess, you know, for some reason in my head is the phrase laughed immoderately. 
And so there is a way in which laughter is is a sort of an encapsulation of her excess, right? Uh, but it also, I think, sends us right back to this idea of intersections between Lydia and Elizabeth, right? Elizabeth's lively mind. And the first time we see Elizabeth is that moment when Darcy, or the first time we get, we begin to get her point of view and the narrator begins to sort of separate out the sisters, is that moment when Darcy won't dance with her because nobody else wants to dance with her. And Elizabeth laughs. And that's when we're told, you know, she had this great sense of humor, which delighted in anything ridiculous. So I think laughter is both a moment when Lydia is sort of immoderate and therefore different from her older sisters and a moment of linkage between her and Elizabeth. And of course, as would behoove a future mistress of Pemberley, she also knows how to keep it in her eyes, right? Her lively yes. eyes. <laughs> right, right. Eyes instead of mouth and lungs. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It is a delight to talk to you about all of this. Oh, thank you. This has been fun. For anyone who is interested in this article that we've been discussing excitedly, you can find it in Kristen's first book, which is called Royal Romances, Sex, Scandal, and Monarchy in Print, 1780 to 1821. Or for those of you with JSTOR access, you can find it in Studies in Romanticism under the title Managing Propriety for the Regency. You've been listening to Live from Pemberley. If you can, please do consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash hot and bothered rompod. We have so many fun perks over there, including a bonus conversation with me and Lauren. So if you find yourself listening to the show within a day or two of it coming out, please consider joining us over there. And if you love the show, please leave us a review wherever you are listening to us right now. It helps other people find the show. We are a Not Sorry production. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman, and we are distributed by 8Cast. We have two amazing pilgrimages on sale right now, one treating Emily Dickinson as sacred in July of 2023 in Amherst, Massachusetts, and the other treating Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca as sacred in Cornwall, England in August of 2023. You can find out more about both of those at readingandwalkingwith.com. Thanks, as always, to our Jane Level patrons, Viscount Elise Kennegarotnam of Unicornia, Baroness Gretchen Sneakass of Breakfast Carbston, Knight Molly Reel of Worcestershire Sauce, the Countess of Kristen Hall, Dame Leah B. of Pickleshire, Dame Becky Boo of Tiara Landia, and Duchess Biddy Higgins of Bubble Bath. Thank you this week to Susan Zlotnick, Elsie Mitchie, and Kristen Simulian for talking to us. Laura Glass, Margaret H. Wilson, AJ Aramas, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Hannah Rehack, Courtney Brown, Stephanie Paulsell, and all of our patrons. Lauren, don't worry. Jane's still hot. I'm so glad. I'm so glad that Jane is still pretty. You two yeah. are still pretty. So are you. We're so pretty. I mean, everyone. But it's you know? the beauty of a podcast. No one will ever know if we're not. <laughs> but we are, everyone. We are. Just so you know. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 